Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet three people who, as far as I know, have never been ambushed by cake. <laughs> Ian Dunt is a columnist for The Eye. Hello, Ian. Hello. Uh, the US and UK have begun withdrawing embassy staff from Kiev and the US have put 8,500 troops on alert. Russia is accusing NATO of sabre-rattling, so presumably that the 100,000 troops it has near the Ukraine border are just, <laughs> just hanging out. Just shits and giggles for those guys. <laughs> just on holiday. Um... <laughs> Is an invasion looking any more or less likely than last week after this kind of round of... uh... It's really hard to tell because there's so many sort of layers to the post-truth strategy that Putin has been using throughout this and really has been using since 2014 when he first started, well, effectively invading Ukraine. And that's partly to do with, you know, the messages you put out, social media, using troll farms and TV stations. But it's also to do with camouflaging your intention. And militarily, there are sort of a range of different operations. You, I mean, reading some of the ana- sort of military analysis this week it was like, well, there's really nothing that Russia can't do to Ukraine, given the numbers that are on the border. Mm. You know, do you want to partition it? Do you want to install a puppet government? Do you want to, you know, just occupy the east but not go into the west? Mm. It's pretty much anything that you want to do. You've introduced this element of geopolitical theater over the course of what, like over a month now. And once you've done that, it's quite hard to step it down without looking like you lost, without mm. looking like you blinked first. And blinking first is not typically something that Putin likes to do. Mm. So even though it sort of you know, becomes more likely, less likely, more likely, less likely, you look at the situation and you just think it's just really hard to imagine a situation in which he just walks all- away from that. But a lot comes down to the degree of unity and of dedication and of recognition of the severity of the situation that the West demonstrates And at the moment, I think you can give the US a lot of credibility on that. You can give Britain less, despite the best efforts of the Defence Secretary, who's had a very good time and has been very honourable and knowledgeable and morally clear-sighted about the situation. But of course, we're completely and utterly distracted by the clown car explosion that's going on in Downing Street. And I'm afraid less, I think, for, for what's going on in Germany, where for some legitimate reasons and others that aren't so legitimate, that looks like the real weak link in the sort of in the west in the sort of the sense of western unity and is incredibly dispiriting in fact in general seeing how out of the conversation europe is on this given that this is what would be the largest sort of invasion since the second world war in europe is a very very dispiriting sight naomi smith is chief executive at best of britain hi naomi hello Boris Johnson has announced an inquiry, another one, into <laughs> allegations that Chief Whip Mark Spencer told Nusrat Ghani that her Muslim faith was a reason for her sacking as a minister in 2020. This is just after backbencher William Bragg accused Whips of blackmailing rebel MPs with threats to withdraw investment from their constituencies, uh, which has been confirmed by defecting MP Christian Wakeford. Whips have, of course, denied both allegations in a very cross. What do you think is going on? in the whip's office if these allegations are true and it seems weird that everybody would decide to make them up in the same week mm. is this coming from the top or you know can whips go uh, go rogue and get a bit power hungry ian talks about post-truth uh, in relation to um your question to him about what's going on in the ukraine and russia and here the current government have lied about so much it is completely impossible to know what's truth and what's fiction. I mean, just today, the Prime Minister has been caught lying about pen farthing and the evacuation of his animals from Kabul. So even if these accusations from Rag and Wakeford aren't true, they're still credible. My dad used to tell my mum that he'd only had one pint on the way home after work. 
And on some occasions, it might have been true. But given his penchant for black sheep, it was never credible. So, so what I'm saying is, you never know with this lot whether they're telling the truth or lying, but they lie so much, it's perfectly credible that they're lying about having not made these threats. On the Nusrat Ghani thing, I mean, it, it, it just sounds utterly racist and disgusting. And, you know, Downing Street has used this really outrageous fig leaf excusing their inaction by saying that they told her to lodge a formal complaint and she didn't. And frankly, I don't care if you're a minister or the office intern. If you're asking a woman, you know, a person of color, a Muslim, to stick her neck out by leveling serious accusations against a senior white male colleague alone is extremely problematic and betrays the prime minister's complete lack of empathy or knowledge of what it's like to be a woman or an ethnic minority in the workplace. And she should have had a better recourse than an internal Tory party process, which I can imagine would just be a kangaroo court if it means protecting the prime minister and those around him. And of course, he's got form on this. He has referred to Muslim women as letterboxes and used many other racial slurs in the past. It, yeah, it's, 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 it's appalling. And I'm, I'm, you know, I feel very sorry for her. Ros Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Ros. Hello. Lord Agnew has resigned as a Treasury Minister over the write-off of £4.3 billion in fraudulent COVID loans, accusing the government of arrogance, indolence and ignorance. It's quite hard to say. Um, <laughs> so but not fair hard play to him for going for it. Um, last week, the write-off was my under-the-radar story because it got uh, very little attention. Will Agnew's resignation, possibly related to my under-the-radar, have any effect on the prominence of this story? Well, it's fair to say that Lord Agnew would have got a lot more attention in probably any other week. And his resignation was quite public. He actually walked out of the Lord's chamber. So he did try and make an impact. But sadly, there were other things going on at the same time and did not get as much attention as it should have done, Dorian, as you say. It has prompted, though, Rishi Sunak to send out, uh, he he sent an indignant string of tweets today saying that he uh, was actually looking into it and people working very hard to try and get these loans back. And in any case, many of the people complaining were the first ones to say that businesses should get loans without any real checks in the first place. So they should bear that in mind before they complained. But, you know, this is this is really very bad because it is this is 4.3 billion to start with that's been written off and the treasury expects to lose 20 billion to this and these are often people who set up fake businesses trousered the money and then went awol and there's no chance of getting the money back it's going to be extremely difficult to pursue many of them because as we all know it's very easy in this country to set up a business and then to make it disappear they deserve to be pursued and put in jail but how many of them actually will be it remains to be seen uh, is anybody here wishing that they'd set up a uh, fraudulent business trousered the money and then disappeared <laughs> uh, i think that every day yeah i feel like i wasted my lockdown doing fucking podcasts yeah <laughs> So what's been going on with the, <laughs> the Labour NEC, Dorian? Has it been a barrel of laughs as, as usual? Uh, well, the NEC considered a motion proposed by union rep Ian Murray and local party rep Nadia Jama, which describes the suspension of the whip from one Jay Corbyn as deeply divisive and disrespectful. Uh, this was defeated 23-14 with one abstention. Hasn't made much of a splash, and it's quite interesting because I think we've had a few years of... Labour infighting always being a story. Mm. And I think even given the distraction of what's happening with the government, I don't think people are that surprised. The Socialist Campaign Group as a body, as opposed to individuals like Zara Sultana, 
didn't really speak up about this. The vote, I mean, going to a vote that they didn't have the numbers to win was very stupid because now it's on the record that mm. the NEC is, you know, is not opposed to the suspension of the whip. And it just feels like the air is going out of this. I did see some sort of hardcore Corbynites railing against the uh, the, the sellout campaign group uh, or whatever they were calling them, um, you know, for not sticking up for Jeremy. And I just feel like that I feel like the left has or parts of the left have expended an enormous amount of energy on trying to get this, you know, trying to get this guy back in the in the party. And it's just been a waste. And it's obvious it's not going to happen. And it's uh, set them against the current leadership. And they refuse to address the issue of Corbyn's failure to apologise. And this is the reason why he hasn't got the whip back, is that he has not apologised for his comments uh, on the UHRC report and uh, this hurt to the Jewish community. So that it therefore makes them seem unserious on anti-Semitism. And it just seems to be this, not the entire Labour left, but but a large part of it has just chosen the most sort of quixotic, you know, campaign and a sort of one-way ticket to irrelevance. And I think it's it's just interesting that this story hasn't blown up and that people actually aren't that interested outside of his fan club. It's been a wonderful change, hasn't it, having a few weeks of just watching the right tear the shit out of each other while the left <laughs> isn't particularly doing it. It's like, oh, this is great for my health. I could I could do with a bit more of this. Yeah, and it's interesting because people could have made more out of this. People could have gone, ah, mm. oh, you know, labour at war. And, and it just hasn't happened. And it just shows really that this is like a, a pretty much a dead issue. This week, the launch of a Met investigation into Downing Street parties was expected to put Sue Gray's inquiry on ice for months. But instead... <laughs> It turned out the Sue Gray's uh, report is somewhere. It's it's definitely somewhere. It may be out by the time you hear this. It may not. It's all very confusing. So we're going to try and unpack what's going on with Sue Gray, the police and Partygate. Plus, with national insurance rises, a cost of living crisis and a potential leadership contest looming, Rishi Sunak has had a surprisingly quiet few weeks. We take a look at the favourite contender for next PM. Or is he? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, restrictions are lifted across the country and workers are filing back into the office. We'll be asking what the future of work looks like and sharing some of our best and worst experiences. Before we start, we have an avalanche of live news. First up, we are returning to our spiritual home, the Leicester Square Theatre in London, on Wednesday, the 9th of March at 7pm. Join Ian, Dorian, Roz and Minnie making her live show debut for an evening we are preemptively calling Has He Gone Yet? Although with a bit of luck, we might need to change the title. (laughs) Tickets are now on general sale at leicestersquaretheatre.com. And then don't forget our delayed grand Not London World Tour. It starts at Leeds City Varieties on Sunday the 3rd of April. A 2pm matinee show with me, Dorian, Ian and Alexandreou. And then on Wednesday the 8th of June, it's on to Brighton or the Old Market Theatre in Hove, actually, with Ian, Dorian, Roz and Alex. More Not London dates are going to be coming soon, we promise. 
All tickets are on general sale now. And of course, Patreon backers get early bird access and a discount on all tickets. Search Patreon or God What Now podcast, sign up to support us and special VIP access will be yours. We're really looking forward to seeing you soon. We begin this week with the most problematic birthday party since Harold Pinter's. <laughs> ITV has reported that a celebratory bash was held for Boris Johnson on his birthday in June 2020 when the country was still in lockdown. He was surprised by cake. One alleged guest was fancy wallpaper designer Lulu Little, a delightful callback to a previous scandal <laughs> in the Johnson cinematic scandal verse. And from Pinter to Beckett, Sue Gray was becoming the goddo of civil servants, eagerly awaited, never actually arriving. But now her report appears to be imminent after all. When Cresta Dick announced on Tuesday that the Met are now investigating breaches of lockdown that took place at Downing Street, the government implied that Gray's report could be delayed for months until the police were done. But just a few hours later, the report was apparently en route to Johnson's desk. Ian, before we get into all these rival investigations, uh, let's start with your PMQ's roundup. Oh, is that a thing? Do I have like a segment? Um, okay, so I mean, you know, he's he's definitely making he, he's realised that that sort of fake act of contrition that he had adopted in the first PMQs when this broke and again in the hospital doesn't work and makes him look like he's about to have a nervous breakdown. So instead, he's going for the let's just throw it all out there, complete confidence. Any question he's asked. He says, obviously, I can't answer that. It's not entirely clear why he, he can't answer that, to be fair. But it's not like a fucking jury's ever going to look at this. There's no contempt of court danger. Mm. And then just plows on talking about, I mean, he just talked about everything. You know, there really did he mention vaccine rollout? He, you know what? He may well have done that. He did mention Brexit. He did mention Ukraine. Fucking Ukraine. Like, the only thing worse than them not being able to focus on Ukraine because of what they've done is them using it as a fucking shield against their own domestic moral inadequacy. Like, that's the only point of it for them. You know, oh, fucking you. Oh, why aren't you guys talking about Ukraine? It's like, what the f- how, how fucking dare you? Like, the people of Ukraine are not fucking like a press relations office for you to deploy when you happen to get yourself in trouble. And he fires off that stuff and Starmer probably is going becoming a bit loyally about the whole thing. But, you know, the loyally approach does seem a, a pretty sensible one for him at the moment. Well, when you have someone accused of crime. <laughs> yes, yes it, it does seem alarmingly suitable for, for the role. But um, but probably wasn't having as much fun as last time. I mean, ultimately, there is a lot of noise now behind Johnson from the benches. It's not like those weeks where it was sullen silence. There's a lot of ostensibly supportive noise. I wouldn't be to sort of put off by that or conclude too much from it because the Tory party, there was a lot of noise, you know, for Ian Duncan Smith just before they fucking ended him. And it'll be it'll be the same here. So I wouldn't conclude too much. Well, on Ukraine, um, Johnson's allies are saying it'd be dangerous to have a leadership contest uh, during a crisis. You know, tell, tell Neville Chamberlain that. Um, <laughs> He's never heard of Neville Chamberlain. He just didn't come up when he was writing the biography right, of Churchill. Right, of Churchill. He was just like, I'm just starting with Churchill. I don't know who the other guy was. I don't know why he left. I was not interested. Do you think it does help him? Do you think it is one of the reasons why Tory MPs are thinking maybe not now? Well, anything helps him that isn't talking about this. Mm. Okay, So as soon as you mention another topic, of course, they would rather be talking about that. It could almost be anything, which puts you in a weird position because it's not, you know, it, nevertheless, it is important to talk about this. I don't see how 
he is really helped by it because by, by virtue of any logical argument, it's not about should we be talking about Partygate. It's should we have a government where talking about Partygate was necessary in the fucking first place? Because, of course, there are things that governments have to deal with, like foreign policy crises. So to me, I mean, that seems like a completely batshit argument that, that they're deploying. But, you know. Amazing Daily Mail headline, which suggested that, that um, the Met was, you know, we lost our sense of priorities and the Met was investigating Boris Johnson when presumably it should be investigating Vladimir Putin. That yes. Chris, Chris, Chris Dick should be looking into that, make arrest 100,000 Russian <laughs> troops. I mean, it's not, it's not even walking and chewing gum at the same time. It's like these are completely different things. Naomi, what is the latest on the Grey Report? We are now talking on five o'clock on Wednesday <laughs> afternoon. Uh, has it arrived? Is it in a horse-drawn carriage moving very, very slowly towards Downing Street? Um, what is it? Is it? Someone did a very a funny cat? tweet saying that Hermes have tried to deliver the report, but Johnson was out at the time. So <laughs> Sorry, we missed delivery. you. Yeah, where are we at the moment? Well, obviously, because this is us, it's going to be published about. 30 seconds after we finish recording <laughs> this podcast. Um, but obviously now the the Met is investigating and can I just say at fucking last, it is good to know that there is something that might prompt a response out of the Met that, you know, isn't a young black guy minding his own business on Brixton High Street. But why now? Because the birthday party, I think to most people would think this was if this was the only story i think most people would find it forgivable you know yeah. there's a bit of cake in the office so what yeah the the earlier parties seem much more in breach of the rules if they are as reported mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so why would this be the trigger the truth is we don't know there are a lot of rumors flying around that get confirmed and then denied within minutes yesterday the guardian was reporting that the met was investigating because of something sue gray uncovered and handed over to them today the guardian is saying the met's decision to investigate was made on sunday Um, and that they had informed Johnson in advance and he had opted not to tell his cabinet at their weekly meeting on Tuesday, leaving them to find out as it emerged. He likes surprises. (laughs) Some former Number 10 staff are saying that the Met will uncover evidence that Gray hasn't. And that's presumably because they've got more investigatory powers than she does. This could end up being very dangerous for, for everybody involved. A lot of the chat has been around... What will Grey publish? What will we be allowed to see of what is published? Will it get heavily redacted? You know, will will Johnson try and control uh, very strongly what we get to see of it? Will somebody leak it? Of course, she can't issue sanctions. She may not even make recommendations. But the police investigating is interesting. And what I'm concerned about is that they are potentially going to be looking at whether or not there have been perversions to the, co- the course of justice. So things like wiping phones or emails, that will get the people involved into imprisonable offence territory. You know, for breaking lockdown rules, it's it's slap wrists, small fixed penalty fine territory. But of course, they should be held to a higher standard because they made the bloody rules in the first place and rules that led to to thousands of people being fined for far more minor infractions than the repeated mass gathering mixed household parties that we've heard of. So I think it's interesting that they're investigating now. We don't quite know why it's been triggered, but it would seem to me that it's probably because it's something 
that is it is far more serious than than anything that would have otherwise been covered in Gray's report. We we don't know yet if it was because she's alerted them or or they've decided to from some other evidence coming to their attention. Roz, you're sceptical of the Met's behaviour around this case. Um, what bothers you? Yeah, I'm not saying, of course, that the Met shouldn't investigate. Uh, of course, they should. They're pretty much the only people who can. They're the police. But let's not forget that the Met must have been complicit in what happened in number 10, which is awkward to say the least, given their behaviour towards other lockdown breakers, much less severe degree than what we saw going on in number 10. During lockdown, let's just remind ourselves, Johnson was the only person in the country, I think, whose front door was guarded by a cop and whose street was permanently staffed by police officers the only person in the country. And yet he was still able to flout lockdown all this time, so many times. Clearly, therefore, the Met was complicit in that. So how can the Met investigate these breaches when they happened under their noses and they failed to act at the time? How can we trust them to say what went on when it is in the Met's interest to downplay the way its officers turned a blind eye? And Why aren't these questions being asked? I can tell you why these questions aren't being asked. And that is because journalists depend on the Met's infamously unhelpful press team to get information of all kinds, including about the inquiry itself, obviously. Going after the Met, it means destroying your relationship with a contract you've often been cultivating for months or years. You do not turn on the Met unless you are willing to risk that. And that is why we are not hearing these important questions being asked about the Met's own complicity in what went on. Apparently, Johnson and Carrie genuinely don't think they did anything wrong because all of Downing Street, which is 10, 11, 12, and I believe 70 Whitehall, it's a big complex, includes 100 rooms counted as one household. Is that a credible misunderstanding for those of us who who do not uh, live and work in 100-room households? This is what I think of as the Downton Abbey excuse. Um, (laughs) You have so many people living with you and around you who you depend on and who depend on you, noblesse oblige, like your interior designer, for example, that you are an exceptional case. And people come and go, and but that's just... That's just the way it is because of the uh, sadly elevated position that you happen to be in. And the trouble with that position is that unless you are prepared to write that exception into law, it cannot apply. And unfortunately, Johnson did not write this exception into law that said that it was okay for his particular kind of workplace slash residence to be exempt from the rules he created. I mean, maybe, as I pointed out earlier, the, the constant presence of the police reassured them that it was all okay. And that does need to be taken into account, perhaps in mitigation. I'm sure he will argue. Ian, Dominic Cummings thinks that other damaging stories will come out until he is gone. Labour can keep asking questions, even if he can't answer them. I mean, is there a danger of fatigue you know which is always a problem i think with news stories that it just won't sort of cut through or you know conversely is the fact that this thing just sort of gets stuck and it just sort of lingers and the same story just hangs around for ages is the thing that becomes toxic like as in the cloud kind of hangs around rather than dissipating well also it it comes to define the government because there's no oxygen for any other kind of story. Mm. But I do think we're at the point, I mean, even if you look at the birthday party cake assault story, that 
really didn't actually get that much attention. In fact, it got more attention when you have, I think it was Connor Burns, the Tory MP, that came out and said he'd been, what was he, harassed by a cake? Ambushed by a cake. Ambushed, ambushed by a cake. And that absurdity gave it a bit more oxygen. But actually, you got the real sense at that moment of, okay, it's just another one now. Like, you know, but, and, but, but that's sort of like being a victim of your own success if, if you're critical of the government. Because mm. it just sort of means people think, well, they're, they're all at it. Basically, it's yeah, they're yeah, all at yeah. it. The things that I think will really cut through, sorry about that phrase, that will really cut through now will be photographs and video. And that's why I think the most important sort of element of what's going on with the Sue Gray report really right. is about does that get included in there? Because that's the real public relations element that I think is far more politically important. I don't mean objectively, but politically important than the actual contents of the report. The Tory rebellion has stalled short of the magic number of letters to the 1922 committee, but it doesn't seem like his opponents are sort of any happier. Do you expect another attempt at removing him? I suppose two questions there. One, if the Segre report is particularly damning. Two, what if it isn't? There'll probably be another one regardless of the contents. I mean, just by virtue of what we know so far, the, the mere fact that she's sent this stuff over to the Met indicates that you're dealing with a level of severity that, that, that would authorise it. And I think there probably will be one. But the truth is, you know what? Like, I find it... You be, you, it's probably good advice to ignore almost everything that MPs say about the letters in right. to the committee. Because it's just it's a completely secret process. And Westminster is almost built in order to facilitate gossip, to create a kind of liquidity of gossip mm. that just sloshes around. It's, it's a place of corners. They chatter, they natter, they gossip, it swirls. And most of the stuff they say is self-serving. Lots of it is just flat out wrong. They're being told. I mean, lots of the time they'd have chatted seven of their colleagues and they'd have said, I've, I've sent a letter. Loads of those guys won't have fucking sent a letter. You know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, it's just it, it is ultimately functionally a load of nonsense. <laughs> these assessments of how many letters are in as a system. It doesn't really allow for an assessment of that. And MPs are specifically very, very bad at coming up with any kind of objective assessment of where it is anyway. Naomi, Steve Baker said we didn't make Boris Johnson prime minister for his meticulous grasp on tedious rules. Um, (laughs) Oh, fuck me. I know. Another MP has claimed that that most households broke the rules. Uh, And of course, Boris Johnson himself is attacking Starmer. I think it's a good attack line is that he's a lawyer, not a leader. So he cares about laws. <laughs> um, does this suggest like a sort of a fatal misreading of the country almost two years now after the first yeah. lockdown when a hell of a lot of people thought that these rules, um, while tedious, were really important? And they still do. So, yes, as usual for that brigade, they have misread the country at large. More than 60% of voters in yesterday's YouGov think the prime minister should resign because of it. Um, he has lost credibility with voters and with swathes of the right-wing media even, and hopefully with the Met Police. And of course, lots of people broke the rules, but they didn't bloody well set the rules. And there is a difference and there should be a difference. Baker, like so many of his ilk, want to live in a consequence-free fashion, a consequence-free life, whether on their disastrous lack of Brexit planning or their anti-mask, anti lockdown shtick. Repeated lockdowns are more their fault than anyone else's. They've damaged the economy more than others because their power over number 10 has meant Johnson has caved to them repeatedly, opening up too soon, too often, not locking down quickly enough, not reimposing 
restrictions quickly enough, leading to more infections and then more late measures that have to last longer as a consequence. So it is a misread, but they've been misreading on everything. The the country has been more pro-restrictions than the average Tory backbench MP. They are more critical of Johnson and think that he should go than the average Tory uh, backbench MP. But in our bastardised electoral system, that doesn't matter. I don't think people, most people did break the rules in a meaningful way. Like if I think about a, a rule that I broke was perhaps maybe I took more than one walk a day. You know what I mean? Or like some people would have sat on benches. It's not, it's not the same as a party. No. No, I agree. The real thing, if I can get you, is this Mickey Mouse upside down, topsy-turvy bullshit of listening to their excuses going, oh, but he got the big calls right, you know, on COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to excuse that. <laughs> no, like, no, you what the fucking reality am I fucking living yeah, in? Yeah, like, how many yeah. people had to die before that argument? The whole point out? that he didn't. Yeah. Oh, ah, but vaccine rollout. The craziness of our lives are that we live in a world now where an announcement that you are going to be investigated by the police for, you know, criminal charge, potentially criminal charges being brought against you is a welcome relief because it extends <laughs> the potential time in office. I mean, that, that is the bonkersness of the situation we find ourselves in, that our prime minister welcomes a criminal investigation because it lets him off other hooks. Roz, is there anything Johnson can do to move on at the moment? Like, would sacking people like Party Hearty, Martin Reynolds, uh, you know, bringing in a new number in a 10 team, you know, insisting on no alcohol beer? I don't know. Is there <laughs> is there any sort of symbolic clear out that he could announce? Well, he could. And I think he will undoubtedly sack a few people. Martin Reynolds will be almost certain to go. But... That's what he always does. He blames other people and he manages to shift the blame from himself to them. But really, ultimately, I'm I'm wondering who would actually go and work for Johnson now at this point in his premiership. What kind of person would would go and work for him at this stage? And he's going to have the greatest of difficulty finding anyone to do it. So I am wondering whether he's reached the stage that there are so few people who he can now call upon to work with him and let alone to try and actually improve the way his office is run, which I don't believe for a second he's capable of doing. It will all implode, as, well, obviously it will implode, but it will especially implode as that becomes apparent. It's the Trump problem where, you know, it's like, well, who wants to go and work for him to be bullied and uh, made to say to do appalling things and then sacked and blamed. <laughs> you know exactly. what I mean? Like for, for, for a government salary. Finally, Roz, the Johnson support group uh, apparently includes Pretty Patel, Nadine Zahawi, Nadine Doris, not Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss. Um, the 2019 intake appears to be generally furious with him, especially when you hear how the whips have been treating them. Does his support seem very squishy, like, what surprised me, I suppose, about the fact that he hasn't gone yet is like, well, who are his friends? Well, he doesn't have many friends, infamously. He has people who attach themselves to him in the hope that he will promote them. And those people, including Pretty Patel, Nadine Doris, other talentless waste of space, these people <laughs> owe their jobs to him and are supporting him for that reason. And they know very well that if he goes, they will be likely to be demoted. Because he surrounded himself with these loyalists and sycophants, you know, naturally, they, they are, there are still a few around. But people who back Johnson to the hilt inevitably lack any moral compass. And they too, because they 
lack, inevitably lack loyalty to, will be thinking about whom to back right now. In terms of the 2019 intake, it's difficult because if you joined Parliament at that time, if you were elected in 2019, you were obviously happy to use Johnson as your ticket to a seat. On the other hand, that may make you ruthlessly pragmatic about your chances of keeping that seat. Do you, do you want to look like a traitor to the man who got you elected? Or has it got to the stage where your constituents now have had the scales fall from their eyes about Johnson and you have to follow their lead? I think it was starting to be the latter. I'm going to wrap up with a quote from Waiting for Godot. Nothing happens. Nobody comes. Nobody goes. It's awful. <laughs> <laughs> This is a pretty good definition for the whole of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Theresa May did at least go. (laughs) Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Next, we're dipping into the digital brand tub in But Your Emails. This week, Cami asks... In an amazing coincidence, Number 10 just cancelled compulsory mask wearing in the government's most scandal hit week so far. Setting their motives aside, will the panel continue wearing masks and why? How seriously will you take it? I.e., will you keep doing that thing where we all wear a mask to walk six feet to the pub table and then take it off for the rest of the night? <laughs> really one of the highlights of the COVID years. Uh, Naomi. Yeah, and I'm sort of a bit skeeved out by the fact that I didn't wear them before now. I've certainly sort of got to that stage of you know I, I guess where East Asia got to much more quickly than us because of its exposure to SARS and other similar um, coronaviruses so yeah I cannot imagine myself sitting on a plane or train or you know other other form of public transport or, or crowded space without wearing one but of course there is that irony isn't there you, you don't wear it when you're sat down in the restaurant and you don't wear it when you're sat down in the pub I haven't gone back to sitting inside pubs yet I've found a couple of pubs that aren't too busy and do have outside heaters um and i have frequented those a bit during this very cold january but i'm i've not ventured back inside pubs just yet Roz, what about you i will probably carry on wearing them for the next couple of months um hopefully cases will start to fall after that i mean i i take a view if i'm in an almost empty cinema or an empty cinema then i will probably take it off because that it you know there's nobody even to see that i'm wearing it and it is particularly for those of us who wear glasses it is a bit of a pain to be honest when you're watching watching a screen and trying to get it together but of course if there are lots of other people yes i will i will wear it i am conscious though that we don't really have the evidence base yet it's very mixed we know that n95 masks work pretty well we know that cloth masks may well not work very well and I'm still going with the cloth masks at the moment I haven't bought any N95s probably I should it's a difficult one to be honest Ian mask no mask 
I, I mean, hopefully there's a middle ground between these positions. So I'm, I'm mostly no, with, uh, we only do binaries. <laughs> and we've always defined ourselves here. Yeah. I'm with uh, Roz here, I'm, I'm, and I'm behaving in a pretty similar way. So um, if I'm not wearing a mask sitting at the pub and I get up to go, to, it doesn't make sense for me to, to wear that thing for six things to the toilet. It, it doesn't. And I don't want to end up in this kind of cultural war signaling thing where it's important to do it when it doesn't make sense if i'm in a train carriage where you know there's one other person on the other side of the carriage i don't bother wearing a mask and if it's a packed train carriage i very much fucking do i never wear them outside i have the same thing as rod's saying with with cinemas from there you know there's a few other people in that cinema not very many then i will take that thing off so it is that it is basically i'm making the assessment on crowded indoor spaces where i think that there's there's a threat there yeah, no, I'm I'm the same. I really don't like... I think since we're more thing in America than Britain, like sort of performative mask wearing, because mm-hmm. there are lots of places where people wear them outside, which is just a scientific nonsense. I thought yeah. the whole thing is like follow the science. It's the same thing here. If I'm not within two meters of someone indoors, if I'm outside, I'm not going to wear them. I mean, I'm sick of them. Oh, yeah. I work in the British Library where you do have to wear a mask, and I'm like sitting there for hours uh, with a mask on. I long for the day uh, when you can when you can sort of take them off. So I suppose we're all, all, all like sort of mask centrists here. I suppose we have reached the commonsensical stage, actually. A yeah. lot of people are kind of making choices and going, well, this is where I think, you know, mm. there's a real risk of transmission and this is where there isn't. Um, and that's much better than, I mean, performative mask wearing is annoying. Performative non-mask wearing is just the most pathetic yeah. thing in the world. I mean, <laughs> yes. that is pure yes. Lawrence Fox. Kind of, yeah. look at me, I don't have a mask on. Like, yeah. who gives a shit? We seem to have just sort of settled down, rather. I could, I could feel that danger in me sort of earlier on in this thing of, of looking around the sort of tube and anyone that wasn't wearing a mask, I just came to really mm-hmm. quite awful conclusions about them. And, <laughs> and, and I could feel it playing into the Brexity sort of cultural divisiony stuff. And I'm, I've, I've been trying throughout to just kill that instinct in myself. So you don't have any fucking idea why this person isn't wearing a mask. You know, you're in no position to make that judgment whatsoever. And just generally, that's not a place we want the politics to end up. So don't Mm. feed that part of yourself. Yeah, same here. And I do miss seeing people's faces. You know, one of the things I actually liked about the tube, and I'm sorry, you know, I like the tube when it's not crowded. I know it's weird. I I, I like checking people out. I like looking at them. I like looking at the faces. (laughs) I like their expressions. Have you told your husband this? (laughs) (laughs) Well... But, you know, you can't always judge everything from the eyes. And it's really hard work sometimes to judge from Mm. the eyes only. And, um, yeah, I will will look forward to to the time when I don't have to do so much reading into, oh, right, you raised your eyebrow. What do you mean by that exactly? (laughs) (laughs) Next this week, it took Rishi Sunak a bit longer than some of his cabinet colleagues to defend the PM. We know that he is calculating the best route from number 11 to number 10. But inflation is combining with energy bill increases to create a cost of living crisis, even before the national insurance rise in April to help fund the NHS and social care. And we've just learned that he accidentally attended Johnson's birthday party while expecting a meeting about COVID. <laughs> Which I can actually believe, maybe because it's just really, it's just really funny. You just go to a meeting, you go, oh no! I, I, I know we're talking about Sunak, not trust, but just ever so quickly, she was interviewed, uh, I think it was Kay Burley, and she said to her, did you attend the parties? No. Were you invited to the parties? Pause. What's the right answer? What's the right answer? I know. It's do just I like, admit are you I wasn't really invited? Unpopular? Or do I, uh, you know, which was, you know, and she probably just wasn't bloody invited. Well, she just charmed her way out of it with her <laughs> bubbly personality. <laughs> Ian, Sunak has apparently been referring to the national insurance rise as the Prime Minister's tax. 
Can a chancellor really distance himself from a tax hike? Uh, yeah, well, you would have thought that would be pretty fucking difficult, really. Um, given that that tax hike, one of the reasons for it is this sort of uh, very sort of disciplined fiscal p- posture that he's adopted at the Treasury of where you're going to fucking give me the money from. Which, put it that way, doesn't sound that unreasonable. But it is pure sort of old-fashioned sort of Philip Hammond, David Cameron, George Osborne kind of neoliberalism. I don't want to use the phrase, but there it is. The phrase is out. And that's what it fucking is. Yeah. So it is primarily coming from there. And it is, of course, unbelievably two-faced for him to be sitting in private meetings with them MPs going, oh, it's the Prime Minister's tax. However, you may have noticed over the last few years that being shamefully two-faced doesn't always have a political consequence. And it may well be that it doesn't for him. Do Sunak and Johnson actually get on? Or perhaps you should say, did they get on before it became very obvious that he, Sunak was scheming to replace Johnson? Well, that happened almost instantly. Though. I mean, <laughs> like, even, even when you go all the way back to sort of eat out to help out and all that kind of stuff, I mean, that was already, you know, Rishi branding and all that. I mean... One of the first, to be honest, probably the first quality you ever noticed from him before you noticed the tailoring was <laughs> the branding, right? You know, the online kind of brand. It was just like, it's pretty, He's he, he hasn't fucking tried to hide it, to be fair, at all. I mean, from what we can tell, they really don't get on on any level. You know, that quote where Johnson said he was going to sort of... Uh, Wow, this is, I mean, just fucking sums up the pandemic, doesn't it? Where the worst thing he could say about someone was maybe we should make him health secretary. That was his idea of the worst demotion. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, he said that to a room full of people who then went and told the press. Now, Johnson might be an inveterate liar, but he knows that, as as we've now learned over the parties, he knows who he's talking to and how many people are there, right? If something's secret, he doesn't fucking mention it. Now, in that case, he clearly was very happy for that to get out. And that generally is not indicative of a very healthy and fulsome working relationship. A uh, former minister told Politico there are no Rishiites, which is good because it's a difficult word. <laughs> <laughs> there are a small number of Trussites, but they tend to be the lunatic fringe. Um, the Mirror reports that he's been wooing Red Wall MPs with promises to look after them if he was PM. Is this a man that's so desperately in need of loyalists? He doesn't. He hasn't been in politics that long. He doesn't seem to have like a firm base or operation in Parliament. Not compared to apparently Pretty Patel does have a, a good operation in Parliament, but obviously her, her star has really fallen. Mm. So, I mean, is this one of the is this is this like the, perhaps the big thing holding him back is that he just doesn't have the the ground troops? They say he's very transactional in the manner in which he talks to people, in the manner in which he cooperates with people. That essentially it's a conversation about what he's trying to get from you, and then once that the sort of you know the business end of that conversation is over, it, the conversation is over. I mean, it's possible that it'd be a hindrance. I, I don't think it particularly will be. I think it will ultimately come down to who do they think is most electable and they will probably conclude that, that it is him. But the thing is, on the electability stuff, I mean, it is worth watching him during this period. You know, All anyone talked about when he came out to support Johnson in that TV interview was, you know, how long it had taken mm-hmm. him. And how, but what the interesting thing sort of happened at the end where he was still being asked about his support for her, Johnson. And he, he thought the interview was up. He didn't like questions, so he got up and left. Now, it wasn't this big striding out of the studio thing, but it just kind of showed you how little kind of training, how little experience there was. Because you've got to know if you stand up and leave during that question, it's going to look like it is the big walk out of the yeah, studio. Yeah. It's, you know, minister walks away while being asked if he supports for his So you just look at it and go, not quite sure that your star is everything that it's been made out to be. Roz, in late December, Truss overtook Sunak as Tory members' top choice for Johnson's successor. But in a recent poll, Sunak leads her 33 to 25. 
do you think this is a tussle between head and heart? Like they really would like Minnie Thatcher, but they know that voters prefer Rishi, especially perhaps if they heard her on the Today programme on Wednesday morning. It was pretty abject, wasn't it? It was extremely soporific performance. And- I mean, we, had to, we had to turn it on because my, my, my wife was just like, I cannot listen to this voice, <laughs> which does not bode well. well and the radio just, was definitely on, right? It did, it, <laughs> it did degenerate, particularly towards the end when, when they asked if uh, she was supporting Johnson and then you could really hear the effort behind the voice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit bemused. I mean, I've heard there've all been these exciting social occasions, you know, fizz for Liz, Liz for biz, biz for Liz. I don't know. It's it, where they get together and 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 they woo. Liz biz fizz. Yes, and and they woo in tabloid speak. Uh, she she woos Tory MPs, but she just I don't think has that kind of charisma and in person as well. You know, the way the eyes swivel when she speaks seeking approval it's kind of a bit scary like a robot that has been programmed to realize that she needs support but you know i intend to always have a tendency to turn to a woman when a when a man has failed them i think it's uh, something that they did with theresa may and they came to regret and i think they may remember that they made that mistake in reality sunak is as ian was saying hard-nosed on the economy and he's shown that he's shown that in his support for loosening COVID restrictions as soon as possible with Eat Out to help out. And while Truss has been able to capitalise on the Ukraine crisis in order to push her anti-Russian credentials, so she's getting a lot of airtime for that at the moment, MPs will remember the signals that Sunak has consistently sent out about how much business and, as he would put it, fiscal responsibility means to him. This is the odd thing about him, that he became the most popular politician in the country by giving a lot of people a lot of money uh, when they needed it most. But he's a small state sort of Thatcherite at heart. So would he have to sort of run against his own record, you know, in, in 2020 to appeal to MPs and members, while at the same time boasting about it to voters? Because obviously they, that's what they liked. No, I think, he'd, I think he can only be true to himself on this one. I, mean, I, think, I think he's got a pitch, which is for a small state government that in economic terms, would move closer to the US, closer to places in some places in Asia than the EU. And that is very much what he will want to represent. He will want the Tories to look like a modern, competent and diverse party. That is something that he will undoubtedly play up and take on Labour on those terms rather than through the special connection with the electorate, which Johnson clearly for a while had. He will sell himself on competence, modernity and diversity, I think. And his next budget is due on the 23rd of March. Now, that would normally be sort of good time for, for a sort of leadership pitch. Is there going to be too much bad news for that, that just the economy is not, uh, is not going to serve his ambitions? There's going to be a lot of bad news. But on the other hand, the national insurance rise won't quite have kicked in yet. That comes in in April, as will the uh, higher energy bills. And it turns out, he will have been relieved to hear, that UK public borrowing was lower than expected. Uh, the figures released this week last year, that gives him more, a bit more fiscal headroom. In other words, it gives him perhaps a bit of space to pause the national insurance rise and an excuse to do so. This will be difficult given that the state the NHS is in and the waiting list and the fact that it clearly needs that money. And then down the line, social care was supposed to get that money. But I think he may well end up doing that. Naomi, Johnson allies are warning a new leader would mean a general election within months, so don't try it. 
But I mean, do you think that's true? Because May and Johnson called elections when they had healthy poll leads and slim or non-existent majorities. Currently, the reverse is true. So do you actually think that uh, if Johnson went, that a new PM would sort of feel so much pressure to call an election when it seems that it would be very politically unwise? Because the reverse may not be true because a new leader might get a big poll bounce as new leaders often do. And so they might choose to lock in quickly for another five-year term before that cost of living crisis gets even worse, before the real impact of Brexit is fully exposed as the pandemic wanes or before interest rates climb even higher. It's not obvious that they necessarily would. And you know, there are pros and cons to, to going quickly and delaying. Delaying gives Labour more time to build up its coffers. At the moment, you know, Labour infamously is is having to restructure and, and doesn't have a war chest. If you're concerned about your opponent, you know, don't interrupt them while they're making a mistake and, and go quickly. So, you know, there are there are pros and cons to both positions. And I think they would probably just read the runes once in post to see what kind of a bounce they've got. Right now, we've got, um, obviously, the scandals is what's hurting the Tories. Do you think in the long run, perhaps by the time of the next election, it is going to be things like uh, inflation, yeah. tax rise? It's going to be, uh, it's going to be in a, the economy stupid again. I think so. And that's why most critics are pivoting quickly to cost of living crisis in their attacks on government. You know, their age old mantra that we can be trusted with the economy and Labour can't. And so if they are failing on that front and people are not feeling, you know, more comfortable, more secure, etc., that undermines their argument. And it'll be particularly interest rate rises affecting, you know, lower middle class homeowners that will be that segment of the Conservative uh, voter base that they will be most worried about and under the ones that, that could switch to, a you know, a, a more centrist, moderate looking Labour Party uh, coming election time. So yes, I, I do. I think a lot of the scandal um, has begun to be priced in um, and the, the, the tipping point now will come around that cost of living crisis. Finally, Ian, do you have any idea what a Sunak government would look like in terms of, you know, both policies and personnel? How different would it be? Are there a lot of choices, uh, you know, out there in the in the PCP? Yeah, I mean, the, I think that would probably get shaken up quite heavily. I mean, it's really hard to work it out because we don't know much about his politics outside of what's going on at the Treasury. I mean, we, uh, they say he sort of thinks of himself as a kind of a tech bro. OK, so we could conclude certain things from that that he might More have apps. A, more apps, yes, yes. For NFTs for, for all. <laughs> <laughs> NFTs as a form of welfare. welfare. Yeah. Just here's your ape. I think there is a bit of evidence that we can go on. I mean, he, he has always been a Brexiter. He's certainly more dogmatic as a Tory than Johnson. He's anti-green uh, stuff because he's been cussing VAT on short-haul flights. He's pretty anti-levelling up because he's been cussing the HS2 leg to Leeds. He was you know, more of a COVID sceptic than uh, other voices around the cabinet table. He pushed, he was a key voice in pushing for unlocking quickly. So I think we have had a bit of an insight into, into what a Sunak future might look like. I think another really interesting factor is how he sort of kept out of all of the scandals pretty well. And it's worth remembering he got his position because Cummings fell out with Sajid Javid over his special advisors, and he came in as the, the compliant puppet. And while the puppet may have cut his strings, the two are 
reported to have remained allies and Cummings is probably like the Colonel Mustard in terms of these leaks. But Colonel Mustard doesn't, he's not always the guilty one. <laughs> I, I, want, I do have to point this out in Cluedo that there is only one in six chance that Colonel <laughs> Mustard did it. <laughs> I think there would be less indulgence under Sunak of the sort of pompous old Tory, Tory tendency, the Sir Christopher Chope, the Jacob Rees-Mogg, that... Peter Bone. Yes, he will not want the party to continue to be in hock to that, whereas that was really part of Johnson's, that is part of Johnson's shtick, that whole you know, old, old Tory heritage kind of thing. I don't think there will be mm. much room for that in a Sunak Conservative Party. And for some people, that will appeal a lot, and particularly, I think, for the 2019ers. It's almost the end of the show, so it's time to take a quick look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Uh, Naomi, start us off. So three years ago, a Syrian teenager successfully sued Stephen Yaxley Lennon, a.k.a. Tommy Robinson, for libel damages of £100,000. And his legal team were meant to be awarded, I think, about one and a half million. But then, in true Yaxley Lennon style, he declared himself bankrupt to get out of having to pay for any of this. Basically, he libeled this this poor teenager who was uh, featured on a video being attacked by other school kids. And... He actually then said, oh, Hijazi wasn't that innocent. He had um, attacked English girls at his school. This caused uh, Jamal and his family to be hounded, forced to flee their home in Huddersfield and set up home in the Midlands. So Lennon declared himself bankrupt um, and avoided paying any of these fees. But what has come out in the last week is that um, Hope Not Hate, the anti-fascism organisation, believe they have uncovered up to £3 million worth of assets held in Yaxley Lennon's name. And so they are now asking for the case to be transferred from the official receiver's office to an independent insolvency expert to investigate whether uh, Robinson's claim of bankruptcy is genuine or not. So um, please do go and visit the Hope Not Hate website to find out how you can support this very, very worthy endeavour and get the Hijazi team uh, and his family the money that they're owed. It'd be interesting to find out how he ended up with three million pounds in assets also. Book sales, hiding it away, you know, a property that he owns elsewhere. Yeah, that, that's what they're saying. Ian. The famine in Afghanistan. I, I should put on sort of on note on this that I, I would I was sort of asked as lots anyone with sort of any sort of Twitter sort of presence was asked basically by the team around Save the Children with sort of Gordon Brown and friend of the show, David Schneider, to just say, Can you make some noise about this on Twitter for the day of action, trying to get people to sign Save the Children's petition uh, yesterday, that was on Tuesday. Uh, and I agree because the situation in Afghanistan is fucking terrible. Um, so the famine there, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of causes for what's going on, and partly the removal of Western funding, the sanctions, uh, you know, when the Taliban came back, sanctions, general lack of income, soaring prices and drought. At the moment, there's 22.8 billion people that are facing food shortages, of which there's sort of 8.7 million that are nearing famine levels. The danger, the threat is that one million children could starve this winter in Afghanistan. So the situation is incredibly acute. And the request really to people is, yes, of course, you know, to donate, but also to sign the petition that's at Save the Children right now, trying to encourage action. You do understand when you talk to sort of security experts, I remember during the fall of Afghanistan, they were saying, you get into a situation with these things where people like the Taliban come in, they cock it up, 
and then you start having to give them money again. But that just sort of essentially rewards people like the Taliban for their mismanagement, mm. because this was the money that we weren't, were, were more circumspect about, you know, with the previous regime. Those kind of questions completely fall away to me when you start talking about a million kids, uh, a yeah. danger of starving. Far That's more than the war. That's far, I mean, this would kill far more people than 20 years of war. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Rods. Well, this is also Afghanistan tangentially. I mean, if you remember the evacuation from Afghanistan when Penn Farthing and his dogs <laughs> got out, but lots of Afghans mm. who worked for Britain didn't and were left behind to die mm. or be tortured by the Taliban. Johnson claimed at the time that he didn't intervene to ensure the animals were prioritised, but emails have been released from the Foreign Affairs Committee today that show that he did authorise exactly that. What? And... <laughs> <laughs> that is, and to compound it, I mean, we're treating those Afghans that we did manage to evacuate badly by all accounts. They've been shoved in small hotel rooms. They've not being looked after properly. They're not being helped to find new jobs. It is shameful what we've done in that. And of course, it's another example of Johnson lying. But the way things are going, I expect, you know, to see on the front of the Express or Mail tomorrow, probably big dogs save the dogs. I mean, it's just, we seem to have absolutely no sense of perspective when it comes to Afghanistan. And I really hope, as Ian was saying, that, that we will now actually start caring about the people in Afghanistan rather than some of the uh, dogs. Mine is a bit of good news. I think uh, Jack Monroe, food writer, among other things, is one of our uh, is one of our sort of great activists. Just a week ago, she tweeted that the consumer price index didn't reflect the range of income levels and household circumstances. And so, for example, it kind of flattened out the effect of very steep rises on the cheapest food. Um, which makes a huge difference to people on low income. She said the cheapest kilo bag of rice in her local shop had gone up 344%, I think. Mm. It was just astonishing. Whereas, for example, you know, a £10 meal deal in Waitrose was still £10. And so as a result of this, stemming from this Twitter thread and presumably conversations she was having behind the scenes, the ONS announced uh, within a week they were going to be changing the way they collect a report on the cost of food prices and inflation, I'm quoting from her tweet here, to take into consideration a wider range of income levels and household circumstances, which seems like something that should have happened anyway, that they should have thought about this. But the fact that, that it can come from, it can all stem from a Twitter thread is perhaps a justification for, uh, for Twitter and certainly um, real kudos to Jack Monroe. Stay tuned for a preview of our extra bit exclusively for Patreons. You will hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. And shall we just also say congratulations to Roz this episode for managing to do an entire episode of this show while having COVID and showing no evidence of being sick. But the, you have put the, you've just made us all look very, very bad. Because when I get COVID <laughs> next time, and there will be one, I'm totally not doing the show. I'm totally taking time <laughs> off work. She's, Exactly. Man COVID, man COVID. <laughs> so just, thanks, Roz. Thanks. Oh, so it's just it's just what I do, Ian. I do. You know, I couldn't. To be honest, I wasn't going to pass up the opportunity to uh, to rant about Johnson again. So you know. <laughs> 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 Hello and thanks for your support to Sebastian, Nathan Bottomley, Simon Flack, Ian Ashby, Joseph Knowles, Robert Hamilton and Patrick Shannon. Hello and thank you to uh, William Simon, Anne McHale, Andrew Wheatstone, Trisha Kusdom, Jerry O'Rourke, James Gloyne and Patrick McKeating. 
Thanks and best wishes from me to Richard Doherty, Neil Sutcliffe, G, Sue Wright, Andrew Davey, Stuart James and Amy Goodchild. And finally, thanks to Matthew Hales, Alec Liddle, Harish Hirani, Ian Carroll, Travis Newton, Andy Riddle and Nick Horn. See you next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt, Naomi Smith, Ros Taylor and Sue Gray. She's always watching. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelnas Afrinovich, and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, offices, when we're not having parties in them, we occasionally work in them. With restrictions lifted, the golden age of work from home is over. But what will its legacy be? Namely, obviously, people in many jobs, from NHS to essential retail, never had the option to work from home. But for many people, uh, there was an enforced two-year experiment. Mm. Do you think it will change office culture for good? What, what do you think is here to stay or, or indeed never coming back? I, I laughed at the start. You because, run an office, right? I laughed at the start because Ian has probably only ever been to my office for a party. <laughs> <laughs> that's true oh my god that is but, but not um, during lockdown it, we'd like to clarify it was not Met, during lockdown and it's a Sue Gray so look I am definitely uh, love the office don't love everybody working from home kind of girl because of the type of work that we do I however have worked in many organizations most of them not in the fun field of political campaigning and I've always been a, an advocate of hybrid working and I think if you um are a manager who doesn't like that then you probably have the wrong staff because it means you don't trust them or you don't trust yourself to be man- you know to manage them by their output rather than their presenteeism and and, and hours uh, spent at the desk. So I think it's really useful to maintain that kind of hybrid thing. But I think the hybrid nature needs to be that when you've got something that you need to get your head down on and really concentrate on, so you've got to write a report or, uh, you know, design a, uh, a piece of digital content or whatever, then work from home and, and get your head down and get it done. But when you're not doing that kind of work and actually when you're at an early stage of, you know, creating a project or conceptualizing a new product or whatever, it's really useful to to just bounce ideas off other people in the office in a real time environment. So I, I hope that we'll keep the hybrid thing going. I think it's really good that people feel that they can work from home to get something done, but that, you know, they're encouraged to come into the office when you know they're not in that kind of uh, rhythm because it is so important to have that interaction and it helps you in the difficult times and when stressful situations occur which they inevitably do in all workplaces if you've had coffees with people and laughed with each other over the water cooler and things like that you have far more elasticity in your relationship to get through the the tough times I think there are a couple of other really interesting things about us not all rushing back to the office at exactly the same time because over the last couple of years the government of course has incentivized um, people to buy electric cars and if you imagine that we were all commuting home at exactly the same time and at 6 p.m. every evening, 
thousands and thousands and thousands of households across the country were plugging in an electric car to charge it, it would presumably be really, really bad for the national grid. So I think staggering commuting times is something that we should also embrace and I you know I'm not asking my staff to travel during rush hour I don't think anyone misses commuting I think a lot of people do miss the office environment they just don't necessarily miss coming to and from it you know surrounded by too many people or in huge traffic jams or or whatever so yeah I think I think there are bits of it that we should keep you know mostly around that kind of hybrid thing of a bit of both rather than all or nothing And that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. It gets even better. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, out every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support really does help us keep going. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. (laughs)